I'm Linda Wisniewski. Happy to be here on the podcast. I've been writing most of my life. And I started when I won a loaf of bread in an essay contest at St. Stan's Elementary School in Amsterdam. I wrote an essay about bread, and I got a loaf amongst bread. And since then, I've got a few other awards, including first prizes and contests from the Wild River Review, the Story Circle Network, and a Pushkar Prize nomination. My first book was a memoir about growing up in Amsterdam called Off Kilter. And the book that I'm going to be talking about today is... Where the Stork Flies is a fictionalized memoir, told still in the first person, but it is totally fiction. And it is narrated by Kat, a Pennsylvania librarian, who finds a lost time traveler in her kitchen. When she tries to help the woman find her way back home, they discover that the Black Madonna of Chenstahova has other plans for them both. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Linda Kulik-Wisniewski is the author, as she told us, of Where the Stork Flies, a time travel novel about a Pennsylvania librarian whose search for her best life pushes away her family until her 19th century ancestor and the medieval queen Jadwiga teach her the meaning of unconditional love. There are several scenes in in Linda's actual hometown of Amsterdam, New York, in the present day in the novel, as well as scenes from Poland in 1825. As did Linda, I grew up on Reed Hill in Amsterdam, New York, at the time of of our ringing up, a largely Polish-American neighborhood. Where did you go in Poland to research this book? Well, it was a double mission. Um, My husband and I are both of Polish heritage, and we always wanted to go there and see what it was like. So we took advantage of a Rhodes Scholar trip. This is a group for people over 55, and they take you on educational trips all over the world. So they took us all over Poland. We started in Warsaw. We went up to Gdansk, um, where they had the um, Solidarity Movement. We went to Krakow, which is a very, very historic um, city with medieval origins. And we traveled uh, south to the Tatra Mountains, which is where where the stork flies takes place. That is now known as Galicia, as it was then area of Poland. Mm -hmm. So we were very intentional about finding the towns where our parents or grandparents had originated from. And it was wonderful. We just got a real taste of our heritage. You know, it's one of those things where people tell you sometimes you you get off the plane or the train and you walk into a city or a community and everybody looks like your cousin. It was truly amazing. The faces, you know, I even had my picture taken with a woman that people insisted on the trip looked just like me. So that was very, very heartwarming. Now, what was your hometown or home place? You mean my ancestors, where they came from? Yeah, yeah. Well, the woman in the, uh, all over the place is the answer. My mother's side of the family came from Poznan. Um, my grand, that was my grandmother. My maternal grandfather came from Yedvabna, um, which was a village. She was from Poznan, which was a city. So she was a city girl. The book centers on my father's line. And this woman, Regina, um, was my fourth time's great-grandmother. 
she was lived her entire life in a little tiny place called Vojtova, um, which is very hard to find on the map. But I did find um, some Polish librarians that were able to locate it for me. Um, so that's the, in that area of Galicia mm-hmm, is where mm-hmm. she was from. And I found that most of my father's family originated there. Um, I had never heard of the place or her. But one day I was at a family reunion in Amsterdam with my father's uh, branch of the family. And one of my cousins, who is now living in Switzerland, had gone over to Poland and, and did some actual research in the parish records and the cemeteries and assembled this family tree. And my eye just went back to the oldest, earliest person, and that was Regina. She was born in 1778. The historical time period I believe you were most interested in for your book is uh, Poland in 1825. And and the part of what we call Poland was at the time part of the Austrian Empire? Right, right. So throughout most of its modern history, Poland was divided between Germany, Russia, and the Austrian Empire. And um, the ruler at the time was Napoleon Bonaparte. Um, they didn't see too much of him, <laughs> my family. <laughs> okay. But um, you know, they um, they had a very strong. This this fascinates me. They had a very strong sense of who they were and their ethnic identity. And they were not Germans, and they were not Russians, they were not Austrians. Um, often they were not. They were forbidden to teach the Polish language and customs in their schools, so they had to do it at, in the church and at home. Um, and there was only like maybe a 20-year period where there was actually a country of Poland um, in the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. And, and of course now, you know, since World War II um, and uh, after the Soviet era, um, it was very interesting to see the changes there. We went there in 2010, um, so it was just a few years after what they call the changes. And you see the contrast between the the gray communist concrete um, apartment buildings and people are starting to paint the walls pink and hanging flowers outside because Polish people are very big on flowers, (laughs) all kinds Mm -hmm. of colors of flowers. Mm -hmm. Did you know Father Czechowitz at St. Stan's, St. Stanislaus Church in uh, Amsterdam? What I wanted to mention is I remember interviewing him once for a documentary we did uh, in about the year 2000, and he said that even though, for example, in Galicia it was part of the uh, the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, in their hearts they were Polish was his yeah. phrase for that. Sure. Yeah. But to find out, uh, but I gather that you you found that most of the literature about uh, Poland in 1825 deals with the nobility, and my hunches maybe you weren't your family was not part of the nobility so to find out what uh, was the peasant class like you visited a polish uh, historical recreation sites mm-hmm. sort of like our sturbridge village or williamsburg so um it was called the Skansen, and i i think they have them in other countries uh, and they also call them Skansens. but yeah it was a great recreation because i was able to see and take pictures of the type of home she would have lived in um the churches there was a little Polish wedding actually taking place in the church at the time, um, a real wedding. And um, the animals in the farmyard, you know, what kind of uh, tools, what kind of dishes, um, 
what their houses were like, clothing. Um, so it, it was a big help to me to, to be able to see that visually. In your uh, novel, uh, Where the Stork Flies, one of the characters is a time traveler from Poland in 1825, right? Right, that's Regina. Regi- Regina. And also entering the picture is Queen Jadwiga, who yes. was, oddly enough, king of Poland in the yes. 1300s. Why did was she the king as opposed to the queen of Poland? Well, they had a funny law around that time. <laughs> they were only allowed to have kings, but they didn't have anybody ready. And they had her, and um, they wanted to make an alliance between Hungary. Um, so they matched her up. She was, I think, 14 at the time. She was quite young, but they matched her up with this equally young Hungarian guy. They got married, and um, she was going to be the, the monarch of the country, but they didn't believe in queens for some reason. They just had, you know, she had to be called the king. Just one of those historical anomalies. You know, she had all, all the powers of the monarch and some magical powers as well. On your trips... Uh, her trip, you visited her tomb in Krakow? She, um, she's buried inside the cathedral, the um, Favo Cathedral, which is a very famous cathedral in Poland, along with her child. Um, she died quite young, um, right after childbirth. Um, she was only 25 years old. I don't know this for a fact, but it sounds to me like she died of preeclampsia, which um, if anybody's familiar with Downton Abbey, the PBS series, there's a character in there that that dies soon after childbirth, and I suspect it's from the you know description of it, that's probably what happened to her. But she's um, held up as a legend. She is a saint in the Catholic Church, and uh, there's a story about her where she would go out to help uh, feed the poor at night from her castle with her apron full of um, loaves of bread. And this was frowned upon, so um, when the guards were coming near to catch her, her bread was transformed into roses. So that's one of her miracles, and um, that appears in the book, not in that form, because um, in the book she is traveling between 2017 Doylestown, PA, and 1825 um, Wojtowa, Poland. So she has kind of an, a scent of roses following her. And whenever she shows up, you know, people start smelling roses. In your book, the queen is kind of a, a wisecracker. Yes, yes. She, she was quite young. And I didn't, you know, I think a lot of times we take um, our saints seriously, and they were real people, saintly people. But I think sometimes, you know, they, they were human, and they saw the humor in life and the joy in life. I wanted to contrast the modern woman with the woman from 1825, their their lives. And here comes a woman from the 1400s looking at both of them and shaking her head. Um, so she's, she's actually a guide um, from the Black Madonna to help these two women straighten themselves out. And they fall all over their own feet, and mm-hmm. they just get in each other's way all the time. And she's trying to help them without telling them exactly what to do, because they're supposed to figure it out themselves. So she she has a lot of um, she sees a lot of humor in their lives, and mm-hmm. she has sort of a haughty bearing as well. I gave her a little bit of a attitude. <laughs> okay. she, she's the queen, and she doesn't want to let them to know she's really a queen. So she dresses. 
she dresses kind of uh, high fashion. You said she is sent by the Black Madonna. Can you explain the Black Madonna? Yeah, the Black Madonna is a huge figure. Um, so is Queen Jadwiga, but the Black Madonna is a huge figure in Polish culture and religion. Um, she is a painting in the um, uh, the church at Częstochowa, Poland, and the legend has it that um, when Poland was invaded by Sweden, of all countries, um, <laughs> they were invaded by just about everybody, um, a soldier slashed her cheek. So she has a scar across her face, and it's symbolic of, you know, the suffering um, that the country has gone through, that she is in solidarity with them. Um, the other interesting thing is that her skin and hands are black, and the um, Christ child that she is cradling um, also has black skin. And I discovered that there are black Madonnas all over the world. Um, Our Lady of Guadalupe is considered a black Madonna. Um, last year, um, or a couple of years ago, I was in Spain, and I visited the um, black Madonna of Montserrat. Um, and there, there's no real explanation, but the historical... Um, studies seem to believe that these are ancient goddess symbols that were um, appropriated when the church came into being um, because the people were already worshiping these goddesses. So they they dressed them up um, as Mary, the mother of Jesus, um, to bring that uh, Madonna into the church. But um, all through the communist era, the Black Madonna at Częstochowa was revered. Um, people make pilgrimages to her church. There's uh, even a Polish shrine here in Doylestown where I live, where, and it's called um, the Shrine of Częstochowa. And people come from the area as far as, as New Jersey, so they'll walk maybe 90 to 100 miles. Uh, they didn't do it last year because of the pandemic, but it's usually in the summer around August, and they they walk all the way from their home to this shrine. Um, you know, and it's it's analogous to a lot of the pilgrimages, like people going to Mecca or the walking the Camino in Spain. Um, so it's a very meaningful ritual to walk to some uh, spot of historic significance. So she's she's like the mother of Poland. She's called the Queen of Poland. And she's just right up there. <laughs> okay. Uh, Linda Wisniewski is uh, joining us, author of Where the Stork Flies, a time travel novel uh, published by Sand Hill Review Press. The book does contain scenes from our mutual hometown of Amsterdam, New York, including Skiba's Tavern, uh, a Polish deli, uh, Park Hill, which is a neighborhood in Amsterdam, the Walmart, Amsterdam Memorial Hospital. Uh, why were these places important? For me, they're iconic to the Amsterdam that I knew and loved. The working-class neighborhoods uh, with salt-of-the-earth people who worked hard, loved their families and their church, and they were people like Regina. Um, places that Kat, the main character, grew up in but has forgotten the importance of all these old values so um, on one of their attempts to time travel, they decide to travel to Amsterdam, New York, because they heard that if there's familiar genetic material in a place, you might be able to find a portal to transport you back to where you came from. So they come to Amsterdam looking for a portal to Poland. And I think you could find such a portal at Skiba's. <laughs> Is it still there? 
I, I believe so, although I haven't okay. been up in recent days. But I remember yeah. Skiba's Tavern well because when I was a little boy, one of my best friends was a, a girl named Carol Ludwin, and she lived not over the tavern but in the building and be, uh, on the second floor behind the tavern. So mm-hmm. I used to mm-hmm. go by Skiba's quite a lot. Did you? Yeah, I changed some of the names of, of the um, stores and locations um just i don't know i just felt they felt the story better so they're they're some of them are real places with different names some of them are real places with their real names but that's where the similarity ends um the rest of it is fiction the people are all and things that happen there are are all fiction but i wanted to set that in the place because of the the genetic component there they're trying to find a a way to travel you would uh, said that regina who is the your time traveler from the 1800s was, I don't know what the word would be, surprised at how your character from the 21st century is is living. Um, but she likes the old timers in Amsterdam better. Yeah, she doesn't really get to meet many old timers because she's kind of scared and she just wants to get out of there. Um, she's not impressed with the um, with Cat's life, who's the modern character. Cat um, is trying to convince her that as a woman, her life would be better here in the present. And Regina is having none of it. She thinks that you know the Cat um, and her friends are too scattered. Um, they have maybe too many choices in their lives, and they don't know what to do. Regina knows exactly what she's supposed to do in life, and she wants to get back to it. You say that Regina, you know, has reservations about the way the 21st century uh, character is living. Are her reservations the same as how Queen Jadwiga uh, um, observes it, or does she give a, yet a different perspective? Now, she, she gives it a different perspective. She's um, quite religious, and um, Kat, the modern character, is more new age. Um, she has her... Um, her uh, dream catchers hanging from the visor of her car and she drives everywhere and Regina doesn't understand why they can't walk um, and where the horses are and the, the carts and, you know, um, she gets very car sick. The problems that um, Jadwiga has with the two of them is that they are so focused on... Um, trying to find a way, a portal, and, you know, they're struggling against each other for a a good bit of the novel, um, that she's trying to get them to be on the same page with each other, you know, that they're related, they're both women, um, they both have similar experiences if they could only see them. So that's kind of the source of her exasperation with them. You've been writing for some time. What made you decide... to write this book, a time travel novel? As I said, I um, saw this family tree at a family reunion, and I just wanted to, you know, my first thought was, gee, what would she think of my life today? Wouldn't she think it was great? Wow. (laughs) (laughs) You know? And um, so I started to write sort of, you know, a contrast between, you know, the two of them, and then I thought, well, she's got to see it. She's got to get here and observe what I'm doing. And then, of course, it became a a fictional character um, instead of me. I made the main character, um, Kat, um, who had a lot of other problems besides, you know, the regular um, stuff that we deal with every day. So um, 
it was important for me um, to write that. And then I was surprised to find that as I went deeper, um, there were more layers to the story, um, you know, involving um, the importance of friendship and how we often overlook um, friends and family as we're trying to make our way in life, trying to be a success, um, maybe even um, neglect the importance of faith in something greater than ourselves. So um, they both do learn from each other. Um, and the, I guess what I hope people will take away from that is we do learn from each other. We can learn from mm-hmm. each other if we're open to it. And none of us in any particular place or time has all the answers or mm-hmm. the best way. What was it like going from writing memoir, which are one of your previous books, or I believe your previous book was a memoir, uh, to writing fiction? Very interesting. <laughs> I thought it was going to. I thought, oh, this will be easy. I'll just write it as a memoir. <laughs> and um, with a memoir, <laughs> excuse me, you know what happens. And you just have to make um, choices. I tell my students, uh, memoir is a segment of your life. So you're making choices about what scenes you're going to include, what people you're going to include. Um, that can be difficult when, until you figure out what your story actually is. Um, but with fiction, you have to make everything up. Okay, I had some places and maybe some characters that already existed, so I didn't have to make them up. But I did because I wanted things to happen in those places that never really happened, and I wanted these characters to, to do and say things that they never did. Um, so that was sort of a struggle. Um, I did take quite a few workshops, and I worked with some teachers on um, writing fiction, and one of them said to me at one point, she said, find the story that lights your fire. Hmm. And it wasn't, for me, it wasn't just, um, you know, modern woman, uh, 18th century woman, you know, they're different, so what? Um, what, what started to light my fire was, um, what was the story? Uh, why was Kat doing all this for this woman? Why doesn't she just take her to um homeless shelter or a Polish, you know, organization and say, here, help this woman out? You know, why is she going to such great lengths and traveling around with her and trying to help her. So that became the story. But it took a while, you know, it took several years to figure out what I wanted to say. And so it's it's more difficult, but I think a lot of fiction writers would say that is, is the fun of it, the joy of it, the agony of it, the beauty of it, and it's why you do it. You find, you latch onto something that, as my teacher said, lights your fire, and mm-hmm. you want to go there. Why and how do you do you use humor in telling the story? As I mentioned, the real Joker is Queen Edviga. <laughs> the mm-hmm. um, inadvertent one is Regina. She uses a lot of malaprops, um, you know, in her speech. She's trying to learn English, and she falls in love with. Um, she watches a lot of TV, and she she watches the Love Boat, and she wants to, you know, call them and see if they can get her back to Poland. And so there's funny scenes in that, but I, I decided to do it that way because I, I noticed that people that have a distinct ethnic background often joke about it. We joke about ourselves, the way we speak, the culture, but without being derogatory. And um, I think there are many ways of being affectionately funny about yourself, not about other people, but about yourself without mm-hmm. demeaning yourself or your culture. 
For example, uh, my Italian friends will joke about the half-hour goodbye when they're leaving a relative's home. You know, right. they say goodbye on the on the steps for half an hour. And I have a Cuban friend that jokes about uh, being late for everything because she says I'm on Cuban time. Mm-hmm. So it's not self-deprecating, but it's kind of funny. And I think Polish-Americans can be very serious about our heritage, very defensive sometimes because of all the bad Polish jokes <laughs> about yeah, us. Yeah. So I wanted to just show a way to loosen up and have some fun with it. There's no no derogatory Polish jokes in my book at all. And also um, Kat, the main character, she is also Polish-American, um, and takes herself very seriously, and Regina finds that funny. So there's that interplay between the two of them and then eventually the three of them. Yours is the second book in recent months that uh, focused to some degree or another on Amsterdam, New York, and its Polish Americans and Polish neighborhoods. Uh, The other book, uh, Reed Hill native David Petruja's memoir, Too Long Ago, he's been on the podcast, and uh, we've done a number of programs together. Are you are you familiar with his book, or did you know him at all? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know him personally. We're Facebook friends, <laughs> and I do I do have his book, yeah, and I'm, I'm enjoying it. I'm, I'm dipping in and out of it, which is interesting. I'm not reading it cover to cover. I'm dipping in and out of it. I find that really enjoyable. I, I wish he had an index in there, but I flip through different pages, and I go, oh, the Water Street murder. Mm, I remember that. So, yeah. it's yeah, it's quite um, comprehensive. He has a ton, a ton of details about that period in Amsterdam's history, and I'm loving mm-hmm. it. What do you suppose your growing up in Amsterdam has added to this book? Definitely the um, ethnic neighborhoods and how the interplay goes between different neighborhoods and within the neighborhoods, the hard-working, working class. All my, you know, friends, family, relatives were all um, factory workers in the rug mills or the broom factories. My grandfather owned a bar, um, St. Michael's Society on um, uh, J Street or J J Street. I think it's Reed Street, but go ahead. Oh, maybe it was Reed Street. I don't know. I'm losing it now. I have to go back and refresh my map. Um, But, yeah, so... Um, and, you know, my Uncle Ed owned a tavern um, on the West End for a while. Um, my father worked at General Electric after the rug mills. My, he met my mother in the rug mills. Um, so that really forged who I was. And I'm just fascinated by the way people form, um, I don't want to say clicks, but, you know, uh, a bond between people who are like them, and mm-hmm. then you, uh, with that, <clears throat> with the strength that that gives you, you look out and befriend people who are maybe not so much like you. Mm-hmm. So, growing up in Amsterdam in the 1950s was a very safe place for me, <laughs> but mm-hmm. there wasn't a lot of diversity and. Um, so I can't say it was it was a safe place. Period. I think you know there were um, people who were marginalized that maybe didn't feel so safe there. Um, but so that that's a framework that I think about often about you know mm-hmm. what what that meant. Linda, one more question: uh, Is this the start of a series? Do you think you think you'll see these characters again? 
You know, maybe. Um, <laughs> I did draft a second novel. Um, this one is told from Kat's point of view, and uh, the second one I'm thinking maybe from Regina's point of view, um, because I'm fascinated by the pilgrimage um, to the shrine. And so I'm thinking about sending her on that pilgrimage and having some hairy adventures. The shrine being the one at Orisville, you mean? Or? No, no, the one in Poland. The, um, in Poland, okay. The Częstochowa, the, the great, you know, world-famous shrine of Częstochowa in Poland. Linda Wisniewski is author of Where the Stork Flies, a time travel novel published by Sand Hill Review Press. Thank you for joining us, Linda. My pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Bob. You bet. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. <laughs>